Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Jean-Francois Millet. Along with Maida Van Dyke of Amsterdam's Van Gogh Museum, my guest Simon Kelly is the curator of Millet and Modern Art from Van Gogh to Dali. It's at the St. Louis Art Museum through May 17th. The exhibition examines, for the first time, Jean-Francois Millet's influence on succeeding generations of painters, from Cezanne and Pissarro to Monet, Gauguin, and even Homer, Moderson, Becker, Munch, and Picasso. The smart, richly illustrated exhibition catalog was published by the museums in association with Yale University Press. Amazon offers it for $27. On the second segment, historian Robin Mitchell joins me to discuss her new book, Venus Noir, Black Women and Colonial Fantasies in 19th Century France. Two quick notes before we get to the program. There are over 40 images of the artworks discussed on this week's show on manpodcast.com, so don't miss the show page. And secondly, thanks so much to those of you who've been giving us five-star ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts and on other sites. Please keep them coming. They really do help new people find the program. Simon Kelly, after the break. Coming February 25th to the Getty Center, Michelangelo, Mind of the Master, an exhibition of extraordinary drawings by one of the most creative and influential artists in the history of Western art. Experience the full range of his work as a painter, sculptor, and architect through studies and sketches for such celebrated projects as the Sistine Chapel ceiling and The Last Judgment. The Wall Street Journal calls the show nothing less than the perfect exhibition. Learn more about this major event at getty.edu. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Norman Rockwell, American Freedom, the first comprehensive exhibition devoted to Norman Rockwell's iconic depictions of the four freedoms outlined by Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom from fear, and freedom from want. The presentation explores how Rockwell's 1943 paintings came to be embraced by millions of Americans, providing crucial aid to the war effort and taking their place among the most indelible images in the history of American art. Visit mfah.org slash Norman Rockwell for more. This winter, the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University presents a world premiere work by Sadie Benning. In Pain Thing, their rumination on responses to trauma and collective experience plays out across 63 mixed-media panels. Also at the Wex, LaToya Ruby Frazier presents The Last Cruise, her critically acclaimed examination of the lives of GM workers in Lordstown, Ohio, after their plant was shuttered. And Stanya Khan completes the season with No Go Backs, a world premiere short film that follows two teens as they leave behind an endangered society. The exhibitions are on view through April 26th. For more information, go to wexarts.org. And we're back. Simon Kelly, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thanks, Tyler. It's, yeah, it's great to be here. You write in the show's quite terrific, page-turner style, beautiful, honestly, go out and buy it catalog. You and Maita Van Dyke write that by the late 19th century, Malay was arguably the best-known modern artist in the world. Statues had been erected in his honor. Many biographies had been written in various languages. And then he's eclipsed, especially by Manet and Corbet. Why was Millet eclipsed in at least the American art historical memory? And why did you want to, forgive the phrase, bring him back? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the things start to change uh, in terms of the reception of, of Millet 
uh, in the early part of the 20th century. I mean, I think it actually dates more to Britain's, you know, to writers like Roger Fry, who saw Millet's work and sort of focused on particular paintings like, you know, like the Angelus, which happens to be in, in our show, and saw his work really as being kind of excessively sentimental and actually kind of wrote him out of uh, their modernist narrative. And, and that was really continued, I think, most notably by in America, moving to America by Clement Greenberg. So if you look at you know, Greenberg writing in the 40s, I mean, he has quite a bit of time for Courbet, for example, and obviously for, for Manet, and, you know, and sees Manet as, as, in his narrative, really being the first modern painter. But in all, in all his writing, Greenberg mentions Millet about once. So he, he is, he's kind of written out of, of, you know, of Greenberg's narrative. And I think you know, what, I, what I wanted to do, what, uh, you know, what Mitre wanted to do also was kind of rethink that kind of conventional Greenbergian narrative, if you like, and and try to sort of reclaim some of the radicalism that, that, that Millet originally had. I mean, if you go back to 1860s France and, you know, thinking about Manet as being the sort of urban radical realist, you can make a strong argument for Millet as being his rural counterpart, you know, Millet as a, as a rural radical realist. And, and you see that in, in writing at the time. So, Kind of in effect, what, what we're doing in this show, what we're trying to do is argue for a, a new, I mean, it's, you know, it's an ambitious aim, but it's, it, it, hopefully it will ask some questions, a sort of different narrative uh, for the history of modern art coming out of Millet's work, you know, focusing on, on themes of rural life and, and nature, obviously, but an international narrative, you know, so moving from the French, you know, Pizarro is a key figure, um, but also thinking a lot about, you know, the Americans, somebody like Winslow Homer, the Germans, there was a you know a lot of interest in Millet in Germany, so somebody like Mordesson Becker, right up to uh, Salvador Dali, who was obsessed actually by Millet and, and produced a you know a significant body of, of work based on the Angelus painting, which have, you know have, have have been so you know controversial and and, and seen by and, you know by somebody like um, Pizarro as being. Pizarro described it as having an idiotic sentimentality, <laughs> but for Dali it had a you know completely different resonance. We will get to a number of those artists as as we go along. You mentioned Malay's interest in in rural or agrarian scenes. You know, this is probably a little broad, but what was his key formal in, in innovation or approach? And what were the subject matters to which he was drawn? So not just, you know, agrarians, but but maybe more specific than that. To me, the, the key formal approach or formal innovation is actually his abstraction. And this was something that was being written about, you know, in his lifetime, but also in, in, in the latter part of the 19th century. He was described as an abbreviator and a synthesizer. That was some, why somebody like Gauguin was interested in his, his work, because I mean, in his paintings, but also and probably maybe more notably in his drawings, you see this kind of reduction of form to, to two-dimensional pattern. So he's not you know, he's not like Jules Breton, you know, producing a kind of photographic naturalism. There's a much greater sense of, you know, of, of strong line and, and pattern uh, in his work. And that was, I think that was important for the symbolists uh, at the end of the 19th century and, and continued to be important into the, into the 20th century. So I think you know, the abstraction is a sort of key element. I mean, he's, you know, his work is starting in nature, but he's abstracting from nature is a key element in his formal innovation. I think you know, in, in terms of his his subject matter. I mean, he, he's representing a, a class, you know, a, a class of rural workers, and he's representing their life in, you know, in all its, 
is harshness and, and difficulty. And again, this is at a time when there are other painters who are, uh, again, Breton sort of springs to mind, who are, are representing that life in a much more kind of conventionally picturesque uh, fashion. So the sort of harshness of the realism of Millet's work, if you look at a painting like Man with a Hoe, for example, uh, is also part of its modernity, I think part of its radicalism. There's a kind of interesting dynamic, as you can maybe sort of gather from what I'm saying, between on the one hand, the realism of, of Millet's work, but also that that sort of move to abstraction that you can see in it. Let's go back to the beginning of Millet's career, say the mid to late 1840s. He's starting with a, a vaguely academic bent, what is he painting in, in, in these early years, and will any of it continue or inform him as he becomes more innovative? Yeah, I mean, he, he trained you know, at, the, at the Ecole de Beaux-Arts in Paris, and he worked with Paul Delaroche. So he had a fairly academic training, and that, you know, that, that certainly informs his you know, mastery of, of, of you know, representing the human body. So you know, in the 1840s, in the early years, he's producing a lot of portraiture. That is what he's, he's principally earning his living from in his early years. You know, later he produces less of that. And then also in, in the 40s, he's producing a lot of, of nudes, actually, a lot of nude imagery. Boy, is he. Yeah, I mean, and they're pretty, I mean, they're actually, you know, surprisingly raunchy. I don't think people think of Miller being a, you know, a, a painter of sexual themes. But if you look at the at the early work, I mean, you, you, you see that quite clearly. And, you know, that was something I wanted to, uh, to bring out in the exhibition, too. And, you know, when he moves to Barbizon in, in 1849, those themes become less less evident, but you still see them intermittently. Diana Resting from about 1845, a painting that would that is at LACMA, but of course LACMA doesn't have collection galleries anymore, um, is, is a good example of a more outre nude. And uh, painting from just after that, like The Shooting Stars, which is in Cardiff, almost seems to be where Gustav Klimt will end up 60 years later. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. I mean, you know, those, those paintings have a really you know, strong uh, erotic charge to them. And, you know, I think, you know, Shooting Stars is a, is a really great painting. I mean, it's, it's, it's not well known. Uh, it's in the exhibition. And I think, you know, it, it will surprise some people. I mean, that's also part of the the aim of the show is to, is to you know, get people to question a little bit of, you know, the sort of cliche of Millet as being, the, you know, just a painter of peasant life. And, of course, he is that. You know, he's a painter an apologist for rural workers, but at the same time, he's, he's more diverse in his themes, so obviously the news, but also the landscapes that you see in, in the show. What gets him from portraiture and the nudes and the end of his academic training out into peasant country? I mean, it's really the, you know, it's, it's the 1848 revolution when he's in Paris, but shortly after that, uh, he makes a decision to, to move to Barbizon, and part of that was just financial, and it was cheaper. Uh, for him to, to to have his studio in what was actually already an artistic colony uh, at Barbizon, uh, and I think you know Millet when I mean, he grew up in in the, in the countryside, he was never, you know, somebody like Theodore Rousseau grew up in in Paris and, and really was I think you know Parisian, despite the fact that he you know <laughs> painted landscape exclusively really, but Millet I think never felt completely at home in Paris. So I think he also kind of valued that distance of, of living in Barbizon and being so close to nature there and then being able to kind of commute to Paris, you know, from time to time to see his dealers or see collectors. But it's really that, you know, that that's the shift. You know, 1849, he moves to Barbizon and then you see him start to to focus on on peasant or, or rural life subjects more exclusively and often using models at Barbizon. 
We, of course, identify Millet with the sower, a figure of form he paints in, in many paintings. First, in, I think, 1847-48, in a painting now in Wales. I, you know, th- there are few clearer examples of an identification of a single subject form with a painter than Millet and the sower. Where does the painting come from, both his interest in the thing and why he was interested in, in somebody sowing grain to begin with? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, some of this, as with a lot of his work, comes to, you know, dates back to his childhood and his his adolescence. He worked the land when he grew up in Normandy. Uh, he, he, he didn't grow up in Barbizon. He grew up in a, in a small village uh, called Grouchy uh, on the Normandy coastline. But he worked the land. He sowed, he, he sowed, you know, the seed in the fields. And he talked about, you know, that experience is informing a lot of his work, including his interest in, in sowing. So actually the subject, I mean, the sighting of the sower is not Barbizon. It's actually the, the, the land in Normandy. So it, it's, you know, it's really a memory of, of his upbringing. And then I think he layers onto that i mean you can argue you know the degree to which you know millet's work is is informed by you know by religion and the bible is complicated but certainly he he was very aware of of the bible and you know delacroix when he met him said you know talked about millet as you know somebody who's reading the bible all the time i mean he's he's somebody who who did certainly knew the biblical stories so i think you know the power of the sower you know that there are elements from the bible which you can argue also you know layer onto the onto the work and then I think formally, you know, he's he's looking, he talks about at this time looking at Michelangelo and, you know, the importance of, of Michelangelo in terms of, you know, dynamic poses and, and you know, the sort of monumentality, the grandeur to the figure of, of the sower. I think you can, you, you know, you can link to Michelangelo. You know, one of the things that strikes me about many of Millet's paintings of rural figures, whether they're mowers or hoers or sowers or gleaners, is he's ever so slightly looking up at them. Not so much that it's dramatically heroic, but gently enough that it's noticeable. Was that his? Was that something he got from someone else, you think? I, I think that's a good question. I mean, I, I I wonder. I mean, I think, you know, in terms of the artists he's looking at, I mean, Bruegel is, not, you know, Peter Bruegel is another important artist for him. I wonder. I mean, something I've also, you know, thought about a little is photography. And it's interesting. I, I mean, I don't think Millet is, is probably connected to photography enough, but there's a number of photographic portraits of, of Millet, some of which date to the 1840s, actually. So he was interested in photography, both, both in terms of his self-imaging and I think, in terms of you know thinking about compositional strategies, so I, I I also wonder about and there's actually some evidence that he took some photographs himself, so I, I wonder about that possibly you know possibly too. I think later on you know Japanese prints are actually a, a really important influence for him and you know in terms of uh, of these innovative viewpoints. You're right. I mean you see them in in a lot of the figurative works, but also I think you know, arguably the most innovative compositions that he produces are in his landscapes where you see these, you know, very high horizon lines and and actually very abstracted, you know, compositions where, you know, the foreground earth area can take up, you know, two thirds of the composition. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's complicated, but, but you know, all of those elements I mentioned, I think can play into the compositions. I'm glad you brought up the landscapes. I've been, I've been skipping past them too quickly. There are two really interesting and quite different examples in the show. Uh, one is The Plain from about 1868 that's in a private collection in the UK. 
that is kind of like a rural countryside version of a Corbet seascape or, or vice versa. And he's somehow looking up at a landscape that is falling away from him. <laughs> yeah, you've got those receding lines, which is sort of very characteristic in his work. And the other one is a painting that mixes a peasant, maybe a shepherd, with a dramatic landscape at which he's very definitely looking up. And that's in the Auvergne from the late 1860s. That's, that's in, the art, in the Art Institute of Chicago. Is that yes. the one you're thinking? Is there anything particularly new or different that you see Millet adding to the French tradition in this, the decade before Impressionism, which we will get to in a moment? I mean, I think, I think, it's, I mean, I think he's one of, with Rousseau, he's, he's, I think they're probably the first two artists to, really assimilate the importance of Japanese prints. And they're doing it before the Impressionists, I, I think. So I think that the Japanese prints are an important element in, in terms of the you know, innovative quality of those, uh, of those landscapes. And I think there's another element as, as well, and it, it's something that also you know, surrounds you know, the, the, the discourse of Impressionism. And that is that the Millet is prepared to make you know major works out of something that seems you know superficially completely insignificant. So, you know he'll he'll make a you know a complete painting or a focus a painting on essentially clods of earth. And that, and that was actually something very you know very subversive at the time. It sort of makes me think about the criticism of Pizarro as being a painter of cabbages. You know it's, it's that kind of idea, you know that you're producing kind of radically non-idealized uh, subject matter but treating it in a very you know, serious way. So I think you know, that's, that's a sort of different, that sort of speaks more to the subject, but I think that's also an important part of his radicalism. A decaying stone house, a country church. Yeah, I, really, I mean, but I actually think the, uh, you know, because there is a tradition of you know, those things you mentioned, but there's less of a tradition of, of just taking, as I say, just, I mean, and the, you know, people wrote, write about this at the time of, of making a landscape out of just a foreground earth. You know, so that that is, I think that's pretty radical. Like in Man with a Hoe, for example. Yeah, or or like there's a great painting which I, I talk about in my essay uh, from 1870 called Winter, and we have a related actually painting in the show from the Belvedere, but you know that painting Winter from 1870 is is Millet's, I think, his landscape masterpiece, um, and it was it's not better known because it was destroyed in World War Two. It was acquired by the National Gallery in Berlin. In, in 1897, I think, but that is a you know it's a radical composition because it's so abstract and the and the, you know the foreground area of Earth just looms up in the composition and you know it has a real subversiveness. I think the, the you know the quality of the composition. They're reproduced in your essay. It is, it is it's in my essay. I mean, I think as, as I say, the closest example in 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 the exhibition is a painting called Winter from 1860, which was in the 1867 World's Fair uh, exhibition, and that's the one from the. Yeah, that's the one from the Belvedere I'm talking about. Well, yeah, it has different titles, but the November painting, which was shown at the Salon of 1870, is on page 56. Let's pivot to Millet's influence, which the show deals with extensively, chronicles extensively, and all, and, and honestly, some of the one-to-ones that the book details are, it just kind of makes one wonder how how how, how America just kind of wandered away from Millet's import. Millet dies in January of 1875, just a few months after the first Impressionist exhibition. I, I guess if we're going to talk about Impressionists who are looking at Millet, we have to start with Pizarro? Yeah, I mean, Pizarro is, uh, is certainly the, you know, the artist who, who connects most closely to Millet, certainly in terms of subject matter. I mean, he's, uh, 
you know, the principal painter of rural workers uh, among uh, the Impressionists. And, and if you look at the, you know, the Impressionist exhibitions, you know, for example, the show in 1882, when Pizarro showed several images, you know, three-quarter length portraits of, of peasant workers, we have two in the exhibition, actually. Again and again, he's compared to Millet. So, you know, that is kind of a trope uh, in the literature that, uh, that Pizarro and Millet are compared. And, and you know, some, for some critics, Pizarro is seen as kind of, and that's a sort of theme of the show, you know, the way in which artists are modernizing Millet. So, you know, Pizarro is, is, is taking Millet's subjects and, and he is treating them, you know, generally in a higher color key uh, and thinking more, I think, about, you know, the, the play of complementary colors. Uh, Millet did that, but I think, you know, Pizarro takes it to, uh, takes it, you know, to another level. More shadows, more, more complicated compositions. Why do you think Pizarro was attracted to Malay? Is it because Pizarro was already interested in, in, in the countryside and kind of that interstitial space where countryside was meeting the emergent suburbs? Or was it more that Malay got Pizarro to that point? I mean, I think, I think he was, although, I mean, it's interesting if you read, you know, Pizarro's correspondence, he's reluctant to really acknowledge the degree of Millet's influence. And I think he always saw himself as, as challenging Millet rather than just sort of blindly emulating him. You know, I, I think he admired the, you know, the radicalism of a work like, you know, like Man with a Hoe, uh, which, which did, you know, you, I think explicitly, you know, contain a, a moral subversive charge of, you know, support for the rural peasantry. And I think for the more overtly political anarchist, you know, Pizarro, I think that, you know, that was attractive. Pizarro's criticism of Millet was that it was, was that Millet's work was too biblical. That, that was what he said. You know, Pizarro was an atheist and he, you know, saw uh, religious connotations in, in Millet's work, which to him were not, you know, were not so attractive. But but, you know, Millet was, uh, you know, the avant-garde antecedent. You know, there's the academic tradition of peasant painting before Pizarro, which is, you know, people like Jules Breton and, you know, a sort of host of academic artists you could look towards. But Millet was, uh, you know, the avant-garde uh, antecedent for Pizarro. And I think, you know, Pizarro saw himself as inheriting that mantle, but also updating it. Haystacks in 19th century French art where where do they start and how might we think of them as they work their way toward monet i mean in in this exhibition where i mean i think there are you know you can you can find haystacks in in a in a in a range of barbers and artists and and, and probably earlier i think you know in in this exhibition we're arguing for the importance of millet's uh, haystacks uh, painting i mean he he millet had treated haystacks intermittently throughout his career, often as a sort of background for his, you know, rural worker subjects. But in the last 10 years of his life, he becomes much more focused on on what you could call pure landscape painting, where the landscape rather than the workers becomes a focus. So Haystacks is, is a key painting in that, and that's a, a loan from, from the Met uh, in the exhibition. And that's a, you know, a group of Haystacks, which really are the you know, the, 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 the centerpiece of the composition. But there's also, you know, I, I think for, for Millet, they're also, they're always a residue of labor. You know, we're, we're, we're thinking about the connection to Monet in the show. And the Haystacks painting was, you know, it was frequently exhibited. It was shown in, Millet had a big retrospective in Paris in, in 1887, you know, which had a lot of impact on, on younger artists. And, uh, and he showed the Haystacks there. And, and again, 
Uh, he showed it in another big exhibition he had at the, in, at the World's Fair in 1889. So I think there's no doubt that, that Monet saw it and that it kind of underpinned you know, his interest in the Haystack series. And But again, you know, Monet is, is thinking about how he can take that subject and and take it in another direction, which for him is, you know, is a serious painting and, and, and thinking about how you take that motif and the focus becomes less on labor and I think frankly more on light and how you know, a particular motif is transformed by what, you know, Moni called the envelope uh, of light and atmosphere. Just to lay the timeline out in audio form, I, I think this will be clear in the images on manpodcast.com and certainly clear in the show, no doubt. But Millet's paintings of gleaners with haystacks behind them, the haystacks are prominent in those paintings, but they're behind the laborers, date to, say, 53 and 57. The painting at the Met you referenced with sheep in the foreground and three giant haystacks is 1874, so 20 years on. And then the Monet's in the show date to the late 1880s and 1890s, so another 15 or 17 years on from that. There is in the catalog um, a juxtaposition of a Cezanne and a Millet that could not be in the show because the Barnes does not loan. But it's an astonishing pairing. What do we see in the Cezanne, which is from 1873, and in the Millet, which is from eight years before? Uh, yeah, so you're talking about the, the Cezanne painting, uh, Man with a Vest, which taps into an earlier painting by Millet of a man either taking off his jacket, well, actually probably putting on his jacket at, uh, at the end of the day. So, you know, I think it's interesting because Cezanne, as as painter of peasant life, I mean, that really happens, you know, later on in, in Cezanne's career, more, you know, more around 1890 onwards. But But there are these earlier paintings like the one you know, that you're mentioning where you do see an explicit, I think, an explicit reference to to Millet. And we also know, you know, Millet was making, uh, Suzanne was making drawings uh, after Millet's work in the National Collections. Um, he had a photograph of the one of Millet's best-known landscapes uh, in his studio, uh, Suzanne did. The, 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 the work that you mentioned also has a I, I sort of give a reference to sort of section. There's a sexual element, as there is in so much of, of Suzanne's early work. And I think you can probably make an interesting comparison between the, the careers of Suzanne and, and Millet. Again, I, I think people might be surprised by the comparison, but the early, you know, strong sexual charge uh, in, in the early work of both artists. And then the sort of move towards a greater sense of, of geometry and, you know, for want of a better term, classicism in their later work. Uh, we talked about Malay's early career, and when we get into Bazile and Puvi, there's an example in the in the catalog uh, of an 1848-49 painting of Malay's that's now in the Hague. And it, it, just as we were talking about with Cezanne, we have Bazile and Puvi just outright stealing from it. <laughs> what is that example, and why were they willing to be so brazen about their quotation? Yeah, I mean, you're, you're talking about the Hagar and Ishmael painting, which was a, it was a commission from the state, actually, in, in 1848. So it's, it's very closely linked to, to politics and, and the Second Republic. And it's not clear that it's actually finished, but it's a painting which speaks to what I was you know, saying earlier about the sort of flatness, the abstraction, uh, the strong outline uh, in, in Millet's work. And I think Pouvet's work was, was seen in that context too. You know, he, he was also somebody who was interested in, in thinking about, you know, compositions in a sort of non-photogra- non-photographic abstract uh, manner. So I think that was, 
you know, and, and we know, you know, Puvi went to, to Barbizon. If you look at his early drawings, and they're very close to, to those of, of Millet and often stealing directly from Millet, actually. The Bazille relationship is a little bit more complicated, but, you know, we know that, you know, Bazille in his, in his correspondence uh, of the late 1860s writes in very flattering terms about the Millet's works that he, Millet, Millet's paintings that he's seen at the Salon. And he may have seen that painting, uh, Hagar and Ishmael, in, in Millet's studio at Barbizon, although that's not clear, to be fair. As you worked on the show, did it strike you that so many painters, from Van Gogh, who we'll get to in a minute, to Cezanne and Puvi, were as brazen and bold in their outright cribbing as they were? I mean, it surprised me a, a little bit. I mean, I, I mean, I think it's... But it's not... I mean, once you start to to look at the, you know, at the degree to which Millet's work was, you know, written about and and reproduced. I mean, in the catalogue, and I think it's important just to think about that, you know, how how was Millet's work disseminated? You know, often these artists, uh, and Van Gogh is a good example, he, he, he was not, you know, copying Millet's work. He, he wasn't copying a painting, he was copying a reproductive print. So, you know, the, 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 the print dissemination of Millet's work is kind of key to this story, as is a photographic dissemination. So, you know, photography has an important reproduct, reproductive photography. You know, the, the Braun Company, who produced extensive reproductions. And this is a sort of interesting moment when, you know, photographic reproduction is becoming much more mainstream um, and, and sort of the, the, disseminate, the international dissemination of Millet's work taps into that. But I think that, you know, that broader, you know, more structural development around technology is, is also important to the, to the influence that Millet's work had. We think of Seurat as a painter of, you know, comfortable upper middle class people hanging out by the water in the city. You have a number of examples here of Seurat looking at Malay both in drawings and in paintings, and they're almost invariably rural subjects. Why, why, did, why do you think Seurat in the early 1880s is interested in Malay other than the fact that he's famous? But was there, was there something about Malay that motivated him? I think it was. Well, I mean, it's, it, it, it's that discourse. Uh, you know, it, it exists in, in Malay's lifetime, but it, it, it sort of picks up steam after he dies in 1875 and that is that he's you know the, there's a quote by Paul Mance which describes Millet as quote an, an, abbrevi- an abbreviator and synthesizer and that sort of idea of somebody who's not producing you know photographic naturalism but is kind of abstracting from nature is one that I think was you know was interesting to Seurat plus as you said I mean he's not you know even though he's he's, he's known for his his painting of you know, the city of urban life. I mean, there's a significant body of work that he produced around 1880, uh, which shows a real kind of sensitivity to nature. And he, you know, he produced a, a, a significant number of images of rural workers. You know, we have a, a, an example of a painting in the show and, of course, all, you know, all the beautiful drawings. So, uh, and the draw, I mean, the, the connection in terms of the drawings and the sort of reductive abstraction uh, that you see in the silhouetted forms of the, you know, the Conte crayon, they're both using Conte crayon as a medium, I think it's pretty, you know, it's pretty clear. And, you know, I think that's a strong connection. One of the things that when I think about Surratt's painting, and not just the work in the show, is that his figures are clearly defined, and each individual figure often feels like it exists independent of everything else that's around it. 
is that something that he might have taken from Millet? Because Millet's figures often feel a lot like that. Yeah, no, I think that's a very astute observation. I mean, you, you can kind of see that. I mean, even, you know, for this exhibition, we have the Angelus. We've blown up the two figures. <laughs> Not literally blown them up, but just we have them, you know, photographically either side of the entrance. And, and you see the, you know, the strong uh, silhouette uh, of the form. And, you know, I, I can see, you know, that, that, that there's a connection there with, with you know, with Seurat's work. Did Millet or his work play a role in motivating the Pont-Aven painters toward Brittany? Yeah, it did. I mean, I think, you know, Gauguin, you know, Gauguin talked about Millet. He described him as a great poet. And I think, you know, not just Gauguin, an artist like, you know, Paul Serrouzier, uh, Emile Bernard, who wrote a lot about Millet's work um, and, and, and his importance. You know, all of those you can see uh, as connecting to Millet's work. And again, it gets back to what I'm saying about that, that theme, which is prevalent in the discourse around him in the 1880s. And that is that he's, a, you know, he's an artist who's producing work of you know, reductive abstraction. The Gauguin from Newcastle is a good example of that. Yeah, I mean, right, exactly. So you see that sort of flattening of form. And of course, you see the, you know, the same fundamental subject matter, you know, Gauguin, you know, you can, you can make a comparison between the colony at Pont Aven and the colony at Barbizon. So again, you know, the focus on rural life as the kind of, you know, starting off point for, you know, the formal experimentation. How does Van Gogh discover Malay? Um, pretty early on. I mean, I, I think even when he was working in the art market uh, as a teenager, you know, he, he would have been aware of, of Millet's work, uh, if not, you know, if not the actual works and the, then in reproduction. But I think a sort of pivotal moment is when he's in Paris in 1875 and he sees that the posthumous exhibition of Millet's pastels had come from the, the collection of, of somebody called Emile Gavet, one, one of Millet's most important collectors. Uh, there were 95 pastels in, in that show. And when Van Gogh wrote in his correspondence, when, when he went into the exhibition space, he, he felt like he was actually trading on holy ground you know, and, and he you know, needed to take off his, you know, remove his hat and take off his shoes. So that, that I think, was a pivotal moment. Uh, and from then on, you see again and again, his talking about, you know, Millet uh, in his correspondence and, and talking about, you know, both the formal importance of his work, but also kind of moral and spiritual value to, uh, to Millet's composition. So does Van Gogh explore Millet's work first in drawings? Yeah, I mean, he probably, he's uh, around 1880, he's, he's producing, a, a, you know, some of which have been lost, actually, but a number of drawings around key, you know, key themes like, like the Soa and the Angelus. But then, you know, pretty soon after that, he's, you know, started to think about how he can translate you know, Millet's work into, you know, into his own particular language. And, you know, think about some of the work that he's producing at, at Newnham, you know, for example, the famous Potato Eaters, you can see that as being his own, you know, particular interpretation of, you know, of Millet's, you know, subject matter. Uh, at that time, his, pa- his palette is still pretty dark. And I think he's, you know, he, Van Gogh sees himself as, as modernizing Millet principally in terms of color, uh, and he talks about you know translating Millet into color. I, I think that's a little bit unfair, personally, because I think Millet is actually quite quite a strong colorist. But again, you can argue that Van Gogh is is taking the color to another level, and you see that in works like the Soa, you know, that we have in, in the exhibition, you know, sort of the iconic painting from the Van Gogh Museum, and uh, also the Krola Muller painting, and you see it too in the in the you know the series of twenty painted copies that Millet makes after, uh, the Van Gogh rather makes after Millet's work uh, when he's at Saint-Rémy. 
uh, the asylum in San Remi in 1889 uh, to 1890. And those, that's an incredible body of work, actually. And we have a number of examples of that in, in the show. In many ways, it, you know, he didn't have you know, what he didn't wasn't able to find, you know, live models for his his work. So you could argue that that was part of the motivation. But he produces this incredibly kind of intense response to Millet's work uh, at, at that time. So there's a painting of Millet's from 1866 at the MFA in Boston called Noonday Rest of two figures sleeping on hay at the foot of haystacks. There's Van Gogh's siesta after the Millet. And then later on, Picasso engages the subject. Do you think Picasso is engaging any one of them, Van Gogh or Millet in particular, or is he doing, as he often did, engaging what had by that point become a, a standard that he wanted to, to do in his own language? I mean, I, I think I mean, he's, he's making that work, you know, when he's at Fontainebleau. So I think he, he was very aware of, you know, the legacy of Millet. And I, I think you you see it actually in the sort of the sort of bulkiness and the you know the, the monumentality, if you like, of, of of the figures. So I think you can see him as aligning himself within a a narrative. I mean, he was certainly he was aware of Van Gogh, but I think you can also see him as connecting to Millet. How do the late nineteenth century Americans discover Millet? Is it in Europe? Is it here? I think it's a mixture of both. I mean, I think you know there's an important narrative about about you know, Americans collecting Millet very early on. So, you know, major Millet paintings came to Boston in the 1850s. Key works like the, the Soa in the MFA Boston, Harvesters Resting. And they were, and we know that they were exhibited, you know, pretty regularly, particularly Harvesters Resting uh, in Boston. So I think, you know, they impacted an artist like Winslow Homer, for example, who also came, you know, he, he probably, I, I think he, when he came to Paris in 1867, he also experienced Millet's work there. But it was, you know, that experience was underpinned by his, his previous viewing of Millet's work in America. You know, Sargent, uh, probably people might not immediately think of Sargent and Millet, but, but you know, Sargent as a, as a young man, as a student, produced a body of, of drawings, you know, after Millet's compositions. And we have, you know, a couple of examples of those in the show. George Innes is somebody else who he talked about Millet as being an artistic angel. <laughs> Uh, let me stop you there on, on Innes for a second. Innes in the American literature on Innes, which I, having worked a bit on Innes in the last year or two, you know, wholly accept. I'm not, don't intend to, I'm not trying to challenge it. You know, Innes in the late 1880s and early 1890s is very much a Swedenborgian. He shares studio space uh, for a time with another Swedenborgian, William Keith. Innes may have come to Swedenborgianism in part through Emerson, who was a Swedenborg disciple going back all the way to the 1830s. Is there a way to understand or think about Innes as engaging both Swedenborgianism in those years and Millet? I, I think there is. It, it, it's interesting because you're making me think about Millet and his spirituality, which is a, is a complex area. I mean, he, he read Emerson. He was aware of the American, you know, transcendentalist. And he talked about, you know, experiencing the infinite in nature. I mean, he used those words. I also wonder about the way in which his, you know, relationship, association with Theodore Rousseau could have played into this. I mean, those two were you know, incredibly close in terms of their friendship. And I think Millet's attitude to nature relates to that of Rousseau. And we, you know, there, there's some literature from the late 1840s that suggests uh, Rousseau was aware of, of, of the writing of, 
you know, Swedenborg. And of course, you've got Baudelaire at that time is also looking to Swedenborg and, you know, correspondence. So, so there's a kind of interesting sort of attraction to, to Swedenborg among those artists who are looking to, who are looking for alternatives, you know, to organize religion in, in, in France at the time. So I think there's actually, and it probably hasn't been explored enough, but there's probably an interesting narrative that you could set up around that, you know, moving from an artist like Rousseau and Millet, you know, through to, you know, through to the Americans. It's the 125th anniversary of Bernard Maybeck and Friends Swedenborgian Church in San Francisco, one of San Francisco's great buildings, March, March of this year. It's not just Americans looking at Malay, Central Europeans are too, and in quite different pictorial language from palette to painterliness than did the French or did the Americans. If, if uh, you had to pick one or two of the Central Europeans as adding something to building on Malay, who would you, who would you point to? It depends what you mean by Central. I mean, I, I, I'm, we actually don't have that many Central Europeans in the show. I mean, we have, you know, I, I think for me, a, a sort of key artist in, in the show is Secantini, you know, Giovanni Secantini, and um, an Italian artist who, you know, spent much of his life in working in Switzerland, and, and he was called the Italian Millet. I think, you know, in terms of the Germans, Paula Modersohn Becker is somebody who I, I think she writes about Millet quite extensively in her correspondence, and you know, you can argue that, you know, the colony of artists at Warpsveder, again, was a sort of uh, another iteration or response uh, to, to Barbizon and Mordezon Becker's work as being a kind of, you know, modernizing iteration of, of that of, uh, of Millet. I think the Russian response is also important. You know, Malievich talks about Millet a lot in his correspondence. And Goncharova was somebody else I was interested in thinking about. You know, Millet's work was shown quite extensively in Russia in, in the late 19th and early 20th century. And I think, you know, the fascination that the Russians had with, you know, using, using rural workers as a, as a kind of matrix for their experimentation, you know, is, is another link to Millet. But, but yeah, I mean, certainly thinking about how Melievich's innovation and that of Goncharova can connect to, to Millet, I think was, you know, is hopefully a you know, provocative you know, approach for the exhibition. If you had asked me a year ago to speak five sentences on Millet and Dali, I think I would have laughed out loud. Now, now I'm wholly convinced. Why do you think Dali, whose interests would seem to be wholly otherwise, was looking at Millet? Yeah, I mean, I, he, he he talks about you know his his experience as a as a child actually at school and you know seeing a reproduction of the Angelus. In his in his classroom, and you know, just being, just being kind of fascinated by the composition. So I think it, you know, that that, the, and it, it is very much the interest in that one particular work, you know, rather than the whole, you know, body of, of Millet's, you know, oeuvre. And you know, he, Dali produces a book himself. He writes a book, you know, called The Tragic Myth of Millet's Angelus. So the whole whole book around this one painting. I, I you know, I'm not exactly sure why he focused on on that work. Certainly, you know, when he when he does focus on it and becomes so obsessed with it, he gives it a completely crazy, you know, sort of psychosexual reading, which, you know, you see kind of played out not only in his writing, but also in a, in a body of, of, of paintings that he produces, you know, from the 1930s right up to actually to the 1960s. You know, there's works that we tried for, we tried to get for the exhibition, which, you know, unfortunately weren't able to travel. But there's a, you know, a large number, we have three great paintings in the show, but he produces a large number of 
that works around uh, around the Angelus uh, theme. And finally, one of the things that struck me was some of the turn of the 19th and early 20th century artists who did not look at Millet, in particular uh, the Nobby, the Fauves, and, and other artists associated with Matisse as we get into the 10s and 20s. Any idea why Millet was less interesting to them than he was to, you know, as it almost feels, everyone else? <laughs> yeah, no, it's interesting. I mean, I, I, I thought about that. To, I mean, I, I wonder if it may be, you know, some of it may be connected to, you know, to the subject matter. You know, some of the artists that you mentioned, you know, Matisse, for example, he's, you know, there are, some of his key works are connecting to, to fashion, you know, to modern life in a, in a way that's probably less, you know, he's not a painter really, really of, of, of peasant life or rural workers in the same kind of way that, you know, you can argue, argue certainly Picasso is at least in some, you know, some, in, in some examples. I think actually the Nabi, I mean, the, the Denis, you can argue that he did have an interest in, in, in Millet's work and that sort of flattening uh, abstraction. But, you know, we don't want to, I mean, I think there's a danger of, you know, don't, don't sort of overplay Millet's influence. I mean, of course, you know, Millet, I, I think he's an important player, but, you know, some of these other artists, you know, they're, they're looking to Millet, but they're looking to, to other artists too, you know, when, when they're developing their, you know, their compositions. But I think, you know, what we wanted to do in this, in this, in this show, was to, you know, get people to question and, 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 and you know, start to realize, you know, Millet, I mean, he was probably the best known artist at the end of the 19th century. And certainly in, in, in financial terms, his, his work had moved from being extremely radical to actually becoming pretty commercial, you know, the work like the Angelus, for example. So, you know, it, it was very well known, uh, the work and commercially successful, but also managed to keep a radical charge you know at least for some artists so i think you know we wanted to try and tell this this narrative which we felt was important but it had kind of been overlooked simon kelly thanks very much okay thanks tyler testing the very definition of portraiture sheldon museum of art explores nuances in the genre from the late 19th century to today Person of Interest, on view from January 24th through July 5th, 2020, asks open-ended questions about self-fashioning, cultural memory, and performance of identity. In doing so, the exhibition prompts conversations about race and representation, institutional power, lived experience, and other relevant and timely issues. Person of Interest features works by artists ranging from John Singer Sargent, Robert Henri, and Marisol, to Radcliffe Bailey, Nathaniel Mary Quinn, and Renee Stout. To learn more, visit sheldonartmuseum.org. Artist Mark Bradford creates monumental works of abstract painting and collage. The exhibition Mark Bradford End Papers focuses on the key material and fundamental motif Bradford employed early in his career and has returned to periodically over the past two decades, End Papers, at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth, March 8th through August 9th. Information at themodern.org. Welcome back. If you enjoyed Denise Morell's Posing Modernity Project last year, you're going to really enjoy hearing from my next guest, historian Robin Mitchell. Her new book is Venus Noir, Black Women and Colonial Fantasies in 19th Century France. It examines how images of black women helped shape France's post-revolutionary identity, particularly in response to the French defeat in the Haitian Revolution. Mitchell's book particularly focuses on Sarah Bartman, Urika, a West African girl effectively kept as a house pet by a French noblewoman, 
and Jean Duval, the mistress of Charles Baudelaire, who was painted and unpainted by Courbet and Manet. Mitchell is an assistant professor at California State University, Channel Islands. Venus Noir was published by University of Georgia Press. You can get it on Amazon for $35. Robin Mitchell, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you so much. You start the book with a visit to Paris and a particular encounter with the French state and its role as a steward of material, but also as a steward of memory and indeed as a steward of the state's own and the culture's own extraordinary racism which is a great reminder that intellectual history is rooted in once living and tangible stuff. How did, you, how did you start the book? How did you open the preface? I opened the book with my decision to show up at the Musée de l'Homme without an appointment. I came to Paris. You know, doing archival work is hard. It's hard and it's scary. And most of the time you don't know what you're doing. And so I sat around and I thought, I really can't start my work unless I, I see what the Musée de l'Homme has on Sarah Bartman. And so I overthought it and overthought it. And I, I thought I need to go get pictures. I need to write a letter. And one morning I woke up and I said, just go, just go. So I got on the Metro and I went to the museum. I showed up and I said, I'm here to see Sarah Bartman. And the security man said, what? And I said, I'm here to see Sarah Bartman. And he stared at me and I thought, if I blink, I'm in trouble. And so I simply stood there. And so finally, I think he thought, she's not going to go. And so he called, he called and he said, he said something in really rapid French. And the most wonderful man came out of the elevator, Philippe Menossier. And he said, you know, what can I do for you? And I said, I'm, I'm here to see Sarah Bartman. And he said, okay, let's go. And he took me to her and to the you know to this day I don't understand how that happened. So quick quick bit the physical remains of Sarah Bartman were transferred to South Africa 15 or so years ago. 2010? 10 years ago, 10 years ago. I think it was about 10 years ago. So what what were you there to see if her physical remains weren't there? They they took her skeleton and her genitalia back to South Africa. I didn't know if anything was left. If anything, I was hoping to see images of things. They did a painting. They did several paintings of her when she was there. And I thought the paintings were going to be there too. And I knew that the body cast had been left behind because the South Africans didn't want it. And so I was looking for something very simple, pieces of paper, a painting, I didn't know what I was going to see. And so when we got into the basement, he said, you know, would you like to see her? And I said, sure. And they brought out this enormous crate. And I remember another writer stating that he had gone to the musee and he wanted to see the body cast and they had denied it to him. And so I was so relieved to be in the door they could have shown me the outside of the crate, and I think I would have been pleased. And they unscrewed it. There were 12 screws. I will never forget that. And they took out 11 of them, and they pulled the, the, the door, and it didn't open. And he said, oh, man, there, you know, there's another screw. And the thing that I just – the thing that stays with me, the thing that I remember was just looking around the room and feeling my body have a reaction to the fact that I was standing – in front of Sarah Bartman's body cast. And when they removed the door, I just started to cry. 
The core idea of, of the book, uh, Venus Noir, is that literary and visual representations of black women were key to French identity and Frenchness across much of the 19th century. So why did France, which was home to just 1,500 black women in a population slightly north of 25 million people at the beginning of the 19th century, use black women to form Frenchness? Well, first of all, it's less than 1,500. That is the total number of blacks that Pierre Aboul is sort of able to determine that are on French soil. At the beginning of the 19th century, I'd say there's probably less than 100 black women. I think the number is incredibly low. So I'm tying the representations of black women to the loss of the Haitian Revolution. One of the things that I'm talking about is how France defines itself as being racially superior, morally superior, and militarily superior, and then losing its number one colony at the hands of men, black men specifically. And by saying that, I don't want to say that women were not part of the fight in Haiti. They absolutely were. I'm talking about sort of rhetorically how we talk about the military and as a male space. And so I think France is profoundly traumatized by that loss. But I also think they retain the notion of thinking themselves racially superior. So how do you have conversations about your own racial superiority when Blacks have just beat you out of your number one colony? And so given the fact that there are so few Black women on French soil, I think it's an interesting dynamic that you can still talk about race, but you can talk about race on a body that on its face seems less threatening. And, and that, at least in terms of French culture, can't talk back because the creators of French culture are, with only a couple of exceptions, white guys. Exactly. And so you're talking about your own superiority and your own prowess, and you do that on a body that's weak, based both on its race and on its gender. We'll get to the three main figures in the book in a moment, but the book emphasizes how artists and writers reinforced the pointed inability of black women to be French in, in 19th century France. In broad terms, how did Frenchness get determined in 19th century France? What were some of the ways culture and even politics worked together to define that? Well, the interesting thing is, particularly in France, is that Frenchness gets defined and redefined over and over again. And one of the reasons why I wanted to look at these women and I wanted to look at them at different periods throughout the 19th century is exactly for that reason, is that Frenchness is always being defined and redefined. What was interesting to me is how often it is defined or redefined against this notion of blackness. So after the French Revolution, when we're talking about brotherhood, Frenchness looks very different than it did under the monarchy. And then it looks different again under the empire. And then it looks different again under the monarchy, you know, et cetera, et cetera. That, that there's always, who are we? Are we a subject? Are we a citizen? What does it mean to be French? And I don't ever want there to be a moment where you think Frenchness is static because it isn't. It's always changing. What was interesting to me was how often that new definitions of Frenchness were still being bumped up against a notion that blackness is illegitimate. So the three women 
featured across the book are, are the aforementioned Sarah Bartman, a woman who we know only as Orica, and uh, Jean Duval. But you start your narrative with a fantastic 1851 bronze bust that's at the Walters Art Museum and that is on the very awesome cover of the book. What is that sculpture and why did you want to start there? The reason why I love that sculpture so much is because of the notion that when I was doing research in France, people kept telling me there really aren't any black people in France. And I remember going to Musée Carnivalet and saying, you know, I'm doing work on black women. And the person there said, yeah, well, we don't really do that here. And about two inches away from me was a black figure with a clock in its belly. And I said, well, <laughs> you've got one right there. And they said, well, that's it. And then I looked on the wall and there was something that said Negre on it. And I was like, is that a slave sign? Like, what are you doing? So it was, you know, I was really discouraged. And so I was wandering around the museum and I, I came across the Palais Royale painting and noticed this black woman in the corner and I got really excited and I thought, okay, I'm going to have to go about this in a different way because what I felt like I was being told was there really isn't what you're looking for in France. You're not going to find this, that these women sort of exist at, in these very specific moments. They don't really matter. And then they're gone. And I thought, no, I don't think that's true. I think they matter very, very much. And so the sculpture was interesting for me because it was a set and the male part, the male bust has a name and she didn't. And I kept coming across Portrait du Négresse, you know, Portrait de, uh, de Femme Noire, where these women were just sort of nameless people. And when I started doing a little bit of research on the sculpture, I realized... Let me jump in for a second. The sculpture is Cordier's Venus African. When I looked at Cordier's sculpture and then looked at his notes, he, he's talking about his models as if he knows them. And so it was really interesting to me that she would just be Venus African when it was really clear he he knew her name. We'll have an image of of the sculpture on, on manpodcast.com, of course. It is very much a bronze bust that feels like an individual, not a type. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's not, yeah, it's not an archetype. So the, it's so detailed and it's so beautiful. And I thought, okay, you've got a set here, you know, the man's name and you don't know the woman's name. And what I'm fine, what I found looking, doing my research is how often a black male name may be listed, but not the black female. Yeah. It's inclusion in the book really serves to ground us in, ground the reader in the expectation that black women are in French art and visual culture and literary culture, and then the book unfolds from there. There is less art related to Sarah Bartman in the book than Eureka and, and Jean Duval, so I'm going to skip to Eureka. Who was she, and how did she come to be a, a cultural figure? Orca is so fascinating to me. She was a young girl. We think she was brought to France about the age of three. I think she was born in 17... In the 1780s, she's actually purchased as a house pet by the governor of Senegal, a man by the name of Boufflet, for his aunt and uncle. It's a present because they helped him get his governorship. And so he talks about in his letters 
that he's purchased a number of what he calls savages for different people in France. And so his aunt later says, we got this girl as a gift, even though we didn't want, you know, we didn't ask for her. So she comes to France. She's gifted to a French noble family and raised by them. And I think she dies around 1799. And, and you're going to hear me say quite a bit, I think she was born, I think she died, because it's the nature of who these women were that people didn't find it necessary or important to record, you know, these, these amazingly important moments, birth and death. And so she's brought to France in 1786. She's raised in this French noble family. By all accounts, she seems to have been raised as a noble. She learned languages. She attended salons. In fact, Madame de la Tour Dupin says, you know, she crawled all over me and I couldn't take it. So she dies. And then in approximately 1820, Marguerite de writes a novel called Urica, which becomes very famous. And in 1823 and 1824, something happens that I call Urica mania, where the, the book becomes really popular, poems and plays, books, bonnets, food are named after this young girl. By that time, of course, she's long dead. But what's interesting to me is in or with within Orcomania, the big question is, you know, what are we going to do with this black girl who has been raised as a noble who is unsuitable for marriage to a noble? One of the things uh, you do is show us and tell us how Orica was described and and presented both visually and textually. So in what form or standard was she kind of presented visually even as late as 1923 in an anonymous in an anonymous painting at uh, the BNP? And how do those visual representations compare with the differing descriptions of her textually? <laughs> wow, it's a good question. It's a hard question. If you look at the picture, the painting of her by Dutat, when she's young, she's presented as being in a European, and by European I mean the way we're supposed to read it is that she's in a white space, and that she doesn't quite belong. You know, she's got she's got gold on her on her upper arm and on her feet that look like almost like slave shackles. She's partially exposed. She's sort of jumping on the furniture. You know, she looks inappropriate. One of her breasts is bare. She's like eight or nine or 10 or 12 or something. Yeah. And if you look at several of the images in the book, it is, there is a bare breast, but it's not in the way we look at, say, Delacroix's Marianne leading the people, where it is sort of incidental to her strength. The women that are exposed, the black women that are exposed in the book are exposed because they're supposed to be exposed. They're supposed to be sexualized. We're supposed to see them as dangerous. We're supposed to see them as illegitimate. We're supposed to see them as inappropriate. And so we've got this young girl who's sort of crawling all over the furniture. Her her master's bust is, is next to her. She's sort of paying homage to him with flowers. There are interesting representations of her, both visually and in the in the poems and in the plays that are done about her. 
she always just looks slightly sad or slightly inappropriate or slightly savage. Correct me if I'm wrong, but in the textual, none of the textual descriptions seem to agree on what she actually looked looked like. (laughs) No. And I think if you look at all, all three of the women that I specifically look at in the book is the contradictions about them. If we go back to Sarah Bartman, she is tall, she's short, she's very dark, she's very masculine, she's very feminine. Orica is light, she's dark, she's playful, she's morose. Jean Duval is listed as being fat, she's being listed as being thin, frizzy-haired, straight-haired, light-skinned, dark-skinned. And I think that that's an important distinction about what they're doing with blackness here is those representations change all the time. And one of the reasons I think they change is because France is dealing with the anxiety of the fact that some of the images, they look attractive. And if they're attractive and you're attracted to them, there's something wrong. And so if you look at the earlier painting by Detat of Urica, she looks, she looks like a sweet little girl. If you look at the anonymous image of her near the end of her life, she looks she looks tired and and haggard and and morose. So, it's difficult for me to do this work because I don't have an image of any of them. And people are doing a lot of work using these bodies, and so I don't think it it is out of the realm of possibility that those images are deeply manipulated. Essentially, had these black women been presented as beautiful, that would have stood in for their fullness within the French project, within French culture and French politics. And is that part of why, maybe the reason why these representations, textual and physical and, and visual, vary? Absolutely. I think that's absolutely the case. I do not think you as a French person are supposed to look at these images and go, oh, wow. I think you're supposed to be horrified by the strangeness of them. And if you're not, work needs to be done to make them stranger. Jean Duval, Charles Baudelaire's partner, the most significant figure in the book in terms of um, how we think about French culture of its time today in some ways, in art history at least. So how did and did not uh, Gustave Courbet paint her? And what does that tell us about how white men gatekeeped at the doors of French society and culture? Well, in Courbet's painting, there is a shadow on the far right bottom corner. Baudelaire is the last figure he's shown sitting deeply involved in a book. And there's a small space on the wall where apparently Jean Duval had been painted. She is facing away from everyone else in the painting, staring at Baudelaire. This is Courbet's studio of the painter from 1855, I think. Correct. And so the rhetoric is that Baudelaire and Jean Duval were going through one of their legendary fights, and he asked Courbet to remove her from the painting. And so Courbet removed her from the painting, and then years, years, years later, during a cleaning, they saw the shadow, and they realized, wow, there's a woman there, and she's she's looking at at Baudelaire, and they determined that that was Jean Duval. And I used that in my dissertation because I thought 
the black women that I write about literally haunt French society. And that was a wonderful way of sort of displaying that. And it's two white guys getting together to decide whether or not a black woman can be represented in the highest form of French culture painting. Exactly. And then saying, you know, no, and then deleting her, but having her still sort of hovering over Baudelaire. Yeah. And how ultimately she could not be erased because here we are talking about her 160 years later. Amen. Which is so wonderful for me because she lived. And I, I believe that the, the reason that we talk about Jean Duval is she outlives Baudelaire. Orca dies before Orcamania. Sarah Bartman dies before several representations of her happen. But in Duval's case, she lives. One of the ways she she continues even today is in Baudelaire's drawings of her. How does he portray her and is he consistent in how he portrays her? No, I don't think he's consistent at all. In, in some of his drawings, she is, I think she's beautiful. She's got long hair. She's got a thin waist. She looks at the height of sort of her beauty and her power. And then in others, she's got a scarf on. I know that later in her life, she had a stroke. And so I don't know if this is a reflection of her illness. You know, they were both, they were both ill for a good portion of their life. So I don't know if what he drew is what he saw. And the reason I say that is because if you read his letters about her, they sort of reflect the contradictions in his drawings about her. In one letter, he loves her, he can't live without her. In another letter, he talks about hitting her in the head with an anvil, and he feels sort of bad about it. In another, he yells and rages at the world because she's in another love affair. So I don't know if they reflect who Jean Duval was. I, I think they reflect what he thought of her in really specific moments of his life. Manet famously paints Jean Duval. How does he paint her? And is it a step forward in terms of engaging a black woman in, in Frenchhood or a step sideways? Or how might we think of it? You know, Manet's painting is interesting. Some people don't even think that that is Jean Duval. The people who do think it's Jean Duval, he painted her after she had been ill after she had had her stroke, after she was partially paralyzed. She looks very awkward in the painting. She seems to be laying sort of back in a weird way. So, but she's in a beautiful dress and she's in a room that it almost looks like she belongs in. Let me jump in for a second. Most of the painting is, is the dress. And if we think of fashion as one of the ways of assigning a figure Frenchness as engaging um, the person wearing that fashion in the French project. I suppose one argument is that the Manet is doing that here. Well, you could also argue that one of the reasons why her dress is so huge is because he's trying to hide her lame leg. So I don't know. The thing that struck me about that painting was the fact that she's completely covered, unlike most of the women that I write about. So I don't know. You know, when you when we talk about Jean Duval, Jean Duval is really interesting for me for so many reasons. But what I was fascinated about by Duval is that she would have had access to these really famous 
white Frenchmen, artists, writers, painters, and that none of them could sort of get a handle on her. And one of the reasons for that, I think, is because Baudelaire dies. Baudelaire dies, and there's a project to sort of rehabilitate Baudelaire in a way and make him this great man. And they can't do that with her there. And I think that's one of the reasons why every description that you read about her is so different is because they cannot get a handle on her because unlike the other two women in my book, she can talk back. So I I don't know how to get a handle on how someone like Manet does a painting of her because they're still negotiating within this realm of Baudelaire. The conclusion of the book nudges into the 20th century through an address of Josephine Baker. Will your project going forward move into the 20th century? Actually, my next project is moving backward. When I was a graduate student, I came into UC Berkeley to do something that I talked about as the Josephine Baker myth. Is when I went to Paris, I said, you know, I study black women and everyone I talked to said, ah, Josephine. And I thought, what in the world makes this sort of the only reference for a black woman with the people I'm meeting? So I came into graduate school thinking, that my project was going to be Josephine Baker. It was while studying Josephine Baker that I came across Sarah Bartman. And I realized, wait a minute, there's an earlier version of this, that Josephine Baker is legible to French people because there's a long history of looking at black female bodies in a very particular kind of way. So I'm not moving into the 20th century. I'm moving back to the 18th century for my next project. Robin Mitchell. Thanks very much. Thank you so much. I love talking to you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.